0: The upper Cumberland is filled with rich history that helped to shape our country to what we live in today. Join Abbott historian Troy Smith as he will tell you tales of characters and events that happened in your backyard. Mountain True starts now. Hello, my name is Troy Smith, and I am an associate professor of history at Tennessee Tech University in Cookeville. And this is part of uh, our ongoing local history podcast that that we have christened Mountain True, uh, true stories about the uh, the Upper Cumberland. My background, uh, in addition to being a history professor, is uh, in my day job. That's my day job. In my night job, I'm also a novelist, author of fiction. You can uh, check out my, my website, www.troyduanesmith.com. That's D U A. E, um, today I wanted to talk a little bit about some some information that I have discovered in recent years about the history of the African American community in the Upper Cumberland and more specifically in White County. Um, there have been a few things down through the years that have been written on on the topic, uh, but when I was doing research for my novel about Champ Ferguson, the local uh, Confederate guerrilla novels called Good Rebel Soil, I was going through the records of the uh, the Civil War. There's a, there's a collection of, of books that have been digitized and are available online called The, uh, the Official Record of the War of the Rebellion that has... All the orders and reports given by both sides during the Civil War. And I came across some interesting stuff in there that I'll tell you about in a moment. And also I came across some interesting stuff when I was going through what's called the WPA slave narratives. During the Great Depression, when the FDR administration was Um, starting various different organizations and groups to try to find ways to spend money on sort of infrastructure things and projects that needed to be done and at the same time provide employment for unemployed people. One of the organizations was the Works Progress Administration or the WPA. Um, They did a lot of things, kind of like the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, a lot of building projects, but there was one special project that the government sponsored through WPA that employed um, unemployed journalists and teachers in the South and parts of the Midwest and essentially hired them to go out and find every living ex-slave that they could and interview them and they actually had these interview sheets with some uniform questions that they asked them. Um, this also has been digitized and is available online to read through um, the WPA Slave Narratives. If you Google that, you can find access to it. And I was I was uh, going through there doing research for uh, another of my projects, a novel that I wrote called Bound for the Promised Land, which is uh, one of my... One of my proudest achievements, that book. It was uh, something that dealt with the meaning of of liberty uh, and sort of follows the trajectory of a slave in the 19th century. Anyhow, I came across some interesting stuff about Sparta in both of those resources. And as I continued to dig, I found more interesting things. So first, to talk about what I found in the WPA slave narratives. In Oklahoma, there was a 75-year-old woman who was interviewed. Her name was Josie Jordan, and she was interviewed in 1936. She had been born in Sparta, Tennessee, around 1860. Uh, So during the Civil War, she was a very little girl. Um, So she would have been four or five years old when it finally ended. And in her interview, she was talking about life as a slave on a plantation in White County, Tennessee. Um, Her mother had gone through several owners. She had been sold and resold several times, um, ultimately winding up um, in the possession of Mark Lowry in White County. So one story in particular that she told is very, very interesting. It's a, a story about the Lowry family, and their hogs. Now, things were rough during the Civil War, obviously, uh, for people in in the South. It was a time of great privation. And the Lowry family had a few hogs that they were going to slaughter with the meat being intended to provide for the family through the winter. Now, that was for the... uh, the, the family the master's family the the slave owners, not for the slaves they weren't going to to get any of this well, one morning, Mark Lowry went down to the uh, hog pen and he saw his hogs all laid out on the ground, dead, and there was an elderly slave, an older black man, that was kneeling down and examining the hogs and uh, uh Mr. Lowry said what happened to my hogs and and the older man said this looks like a sure enough case of maladus um M A L I T U S is the way that the uh, that it was spelled in this interview well Mark Lowry had no idea what malitus was but it didn't sound good and he didn't want to look stupid you know in front of his in front of his slaves by showing his uh, ignorance uh so Since the old man seemed quite concerned about this, Lowry said, "Uh, that doesn't sound good. I tell you what, you people can have this meat. So Lowry left, and the little girl, Josie, who would be telling this story as an old woman uh, in the 1930s, she asked her mother, she said, Mama, what is maladus? And her mama said, maladus? is when a great big black man gets up real early in the morning and goes down to the hog pen with a mallet. So, uh, of course, what had happened was that uh, they had killed the hogs and they had sort of uh, scammed their master into thinking they had died of disease. And so they came out with, with the meat. This is uh, a story that has shown up in several books about the history of slavery as an example of nonviolent resistance that that uh, the sorts of things that slaves sometimes did, but it took place uh, right in right in White County. and in fact, I was uh, I was walking around the old uh, the old city cemetery in Sparta, that's up on the hill behind the square, not long after I had first read this interview. and I happened to look down and by golly there's there's Mark Lowry. Uh, or at least his headstone in that in that grave which brought it all a lot closer to home. Now another thing that can bring the uh the war uh and and slavery closer to home if you're from Sparta is Hunter Funeral Home. If you've uh, passed through town or especially if you're from town, you're familiar with that business. It has been there for I think since the 1880s, it's been in operation. So in just a moment, I will tell you how that is connected to this topic. But first, a brief word. This is Mountain True. And today we're discussing African-American history, antebellum, pre-Civil War in the Upper Cumberland. I'm your host, Troy Smith, on the Henson Oakley Podcast Center, uh, providing for your family's dental care. Now featuring Zoom teeth whitening. Make your appointment today. You'll be on your way to a dazzling smile. Uh, the type uh, that you probably are no doubt wearing right now, listening to my stories. Uh, Oakley, uh, Hinton Oakley Family Dentistry, West Jackson Street in Cookville. All right, well, back to uh, back to our story and back to the connection to Hunter Funeral Home. Well, for this we have to go back almost two hundred years, and uh, look at the life of a man named Braxton Hunter, who I believe was originally he had originally been uh, from North Carolina. He had gone to uh, gone to seminary and become a a pastor. He was a Methodist preacher, if I recall correctly. Uh, And he had attended seminary in Cincinnati at the seminary that was run by Lyman Beecher. Now, Lyman Beecher was famous at that time as a theologian and also as a very outspoken abolitionist. In fact, his whole family, all of his kids, uh, would become very active in the, the efforts to end slavery. He had a son named Henry Ward Beecher who would uh, sort of replace Lyman Beecher as one of the foremost voices of the abolitionist movement in subsequent years. Um, he also had a daughter named Harriet, Harriet Beecher who later married and became Harriet Beecher Stowe the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So very prominent abolitionist family that uh, that was running this seminary when Braxton Hunter was attending. Um, the son of of Lyman Lyman Beecher, Henry Ward Beecher was his was his roommate, and they became best friends to the extent that uh, later on Braxton Hunter named his uh, named his son Henry Ward Beecher Hunter. And that name, uh, the, the name Beecher, uh, as well as uh, the name Hunter, have sort of come down through the generations, not just in that family, but in uh, other families in White County that uh, I believe uh, was due to the prominence of the the Hunter family. So Braxton Hunter moved to, well, he moved to White County initially. Uh, but over time, when Putnam County was formed, uh, his house uh didn't move but it went from being white county to to putnam county he was not surprisingly Braxton Hunter that is he was an abolitionist and he was a pro union man uh which was not the most popular thing to be in white county during the civil war uh it was an overwhelmingly pro confederate although there was a a minority who were not um After the war was over, Braxton Hunter became the Freedmen's Bureau agent for Putnam County. The Freedmen's Bureau was a government uh, agency set up to help uh, primarily freed slaves to sort of get readjusted and um, get a start in life, although it also helped um, other people who had been rendered homeless or refugees by the war who might have been uh, white as well but primarily it was for the, uh, the freedmen. Once um, Hunter said that while he was serving in this capacity, it was not uncommon for people to walk up to him on the streets of Cookville and spit in his face for representing the, uh, the federal government in efforts to help the, uh, the freed slaves, which is a, a sad testament. But at the same time, a demonstration of sort of the uh, the fortitude that Braxton Hunter had. I kind of think of him as a forgotten and unsung sung hero of of the Upper Cumberland. By the way, after his stint as uh, agent of the Freedmen's Bureau, he became, I believe, the I think he was the first superintendent of schools for Putnam County. Now, when it comes to antebellum or civil war African-American history in the region. I mentioned earlier, there's some things that I discovered that uh, had previously not really been known. I mean, they were known at the time, but they had been, they had been lost to history in all the things that have been written about black communities in the upper Cumberland. No one had quite hit on hit on this, but When I was going through the records of the War of the Rebellion, like I mentioned earlier, I was looking for references to Champ Ferguson because at the time I was writing a book about him and I was looking for all the references to Sparta. And this led me to a report that was made, a report that was made on March 28, 1864 by Colonel William Brickley Stokes of the 5th, Tennessee Union Cavalry, uh, William Brickley Stokes was from the Upper Cumberland, uh, a Union man, obviously, uh, and commander of Union Cavalry. He was located in Sparta, uh, headquartered at the uh, the Methodist Church in Sparta, which is now First United Methodist Church, uh, which is where my family and I uh, attend. Uh, they had made the uh, made the church their their temporary headquarters, and uh, some of the some of the folks in the church are still upset about this. They tore out the sanctuary floor and made it into a stable. Uh, that may have been because the uh, Methodist Church there in Sparta was the home church of Confederate General George Dibrell, so there may have been a a little bit of yeah, a little bit of, uh, um, yeah, little bit of Revenge going on there in in that aspect. Anyway, uh, as I'm reading through the reports about Stokes trying to catch Champ Ferguson, he just may had this one line near the end of the report where he said, Lieutenant Colonel Corbin of the 14th United States Colored Infantry is in Sparta recruiting heavily. Now, being from Sparta, when I came across that reference, I was a little surprised because I had never heard anything. It's been about 15 years ago that I found that initially. I had never heard anything about black union soldiers in Sparta and asking around. Not too many people knew about uh, this at all. So it seemed sort of uh, seemed to stand out. So I started doing some, doing some digging down through the years in what I laughingly call my spare time. And I have discovered some things about the 14th United States Colored Infantry and their connection to the Upper Cumberland. Now, as you probably are aware, in 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and that announced the freedom of slaves in any area that was uh, under rebellion. After that, the Union Army started enlisting African-American men to serve in the military, uh, enlisting a total of around 200,000 black men, about 180,000 in the U.S. Army and another 20,000 in the Navy. These, these units were segregated, segregated with uh, black soldiers but the officers and sometimes at least initially the uh, non-commissioned officers were were white in tennessee there were several such regiments formed the 14th united states colored infantry was formed up in gallatin uh, in november of 1863 it was commanded by thomas jefferson morgan who was a northern abolitionist, a very religious man. And his second-in-command was Lieutenant Colonel Henry Corbin. So they were formed in Gallatin, and then they were assigned to Chattanooga. So they went to Chattanooga. They didn't have a full regiment yet. Uh, They had uh, recruited basically enough people to get started, but they still needed more. So... Lieutenant Colonel Corbin was sent on a recruiting mission uh, with some of his men and he was specifically ordered to go to to Sparta, Tennessee and start, start recruiting. And by the time he had traveled from Chattanooga and then to Sparta where he was um, enlisting uh, black men there, by the time It was all said and done. He had recruited 120 men. Now that doesn't mean that 120 of them came from White County, but one would assume since that's where he was located that a large number of them probably did. The others uh, came from surrounding counties who had uh, made their way to Sparta upon hearing that the union army was there recruiting. And then a handful of them, uh, were recruited along the way as they were on that trip from Chattanooga. Well, I wrote a paper about this, presented it at a conference, uh, the fact that the 14th United States uh, Colored Infantry had a pretty large component of, of, of soldiers from the Upper Cumberland uh, and even specifically from White County. And someone asked a question I hadn't thought of. Uh, it was an obvious question. So why hadn't I thought of it? I don't know, but no one else had either. Uh, why'd they come to Sparta? That made me dig a little bit uh, more. And I discovered, to my surprise, when I looked at the census records from 1860, county by county, I found uh, that in White County, there were 8,000 and 74 white people in the 1860 census, 1,145 slaves, and 162 free black people. 162. That was way, way more than any surrounding county. In fact, it was almost as much as several surrounding counties put together. And it was, in fact, the largest number of free black people in anywhere between the Nashville area and the Knoxville area. So certainly in the upper Cumberland, uh, it was by far the largest free black community. Now, how did that wind up happening? I went a little bit farther back and discovered uh, something uh, from the 1820 census. Now Sparta, White County was established in 1806. 1810 would have been the first census. But those records uh, for the whole state of Tennessee were lost in a fire. So 1820 is as far back as we can go. I discovered that in 1820, there were already 127 free blacks living in White County. And significantly fewer white people. So it was a, you know, probably proportion-wise uh, a larger percentage now, again, I'd never heard about this. I had not been aware of such a thing, and I wondered why there would be such an influx, because these folks would have moved in, most of them, in the early years of the county. I came across a, uh, a reference, actually a, a speech, that was given by the governor of Tennessee to the state legislature in 1815 in which he was complaining about the large number of free blacks moving to Tennessee from Virginia. And when I saw that, it all kind of it all kind of made sense because you know, in the early years of the 19th century, the early 1800s, um there had been an unsuccessful slave uprising that got discovered before it came to fruition known as Gabriel's Rebellion. That really stoked the fears of Virginians about slave uprisings, and fearful that free blacks would be on hand to help slaves, as had been the case in this insurrection, uh, to help slaves to to plan such an insurrection, the state of Virginia started passing really harsh laws against the rights of free black people living there and this led to an exodus of free black people out of virginia and into tennessee which and a lot of folks don't know this um was a place that for a slave state in the uh in the upper south probably at that particular point in time uh, was a more attractive place to live if you were a free person of color there was in fact In East Tennessee, a significant abolitionist movement at that time, so all these things sort of uh, came together to lead to the growth of this free black community. Plus, the fact that there were over eleven hundred slaves, so that with the place being occupied by the Union Army, those slaves were now free. Those slave men to join the army if they wished. So, uh, Lieutenant uh, Corbin came through, and he got all those recruits, those who were capable of combat who were in good enough shape for combat were inducted into the 14th. Those who stepped forward to volunteer but were too young or too old or not deemed um, physically fit enough for combat were inducted into the 42nd United States Colored Infantry, which served the war in Chattanooga doing basically garrison duty or guard duty. So here we go with this large number of Upper Cumberland black men fighting in the Union Army during the Civil War. Something that has, as I said, been lost to history. Everyone's sort of forgotten about this. Why would that be? Well, as I looked over the record of the 14th USCT, uh, I saw that uh, they were involved in many battles and they gained a lot of distinction, especially in the battle of, of Nashville. They were singled out for praise uh, by General Thomas, the Union commander, for their for their valor under fire. But I also discovered something else. I discovered that they were in a couple of minor battles slash skirmishes that uh, are significant to our story. One was in Dalton, Georgia. The other was near Murfreesboro, a place called Reedyville. In both those engagements, they took the field opposite the 8th Tennessee Confederate Cavalry, which was made up of men from Sparta. So, white men from Sparta, in some cases, maybe even their former masters. And in both cases, the Union soldiers got the upper hand. In fact, uh, there were some companies of the 14th that were present at Reedyville uh, in what has come to be known as the Reedyville Stampede uh, because uh, the 8th Tennessee Cavalry commanded by General George Dibrell, was routed, uh, and they basically took to flight and, and, and ran from, from the field in, in retreat. And it was extraordinarily embarrassing. And when you look at interviews that were conducted of Confederate veterans. Fifty years later, many of them were still embarrassed to talk about this incident. And if you take into account the fact that some of those Union soldiers were former slaves from White County, that might explain also some of the embarrassment or and or the reluctance of people in the black community to talk about it much. Uh, after the war, because as you probably know, once Reconstruction was over and the Jim Crow era began, it was it was really not safe, probably, to bring too much attention to the uh, the white people you had killed during the war. Uh, another factor is that during this time, a large number of African Americans, former slaves and former uh, well people who had been free to begin with a lot of them moved away from Tennessee. There was this thing called the Exoduster Movement in which large numbers of them moved out to Kansas and Oklahoma, which to bring things full circle uh, back to the uh, beginning of my discussion about the uh, African-American community, uh, that's how Josie Jordan, the the old lady in Oklahoma who had been from Sparta, that's how she wound up out there. So while the war was going on, and while those soldiers were being recruited, another thing that had happened is that they had been used by Colonel Stokes to augment his forces in his efforts to hunt down Champ Ferguson and other other guerrillas. Uh, There were a couple of different um, diarists um, in the area that wrote about this. Uh, Amanda McDowell, who had kept a diary. She was a pro-union schoolteacher in White County uh, who kept a uh, diary about events through the war. She mentioned this, uh, the fact that there were black soldiers, as adding insult to injury on the part of the Yankees. And she was pro-union. Um, over in Warren County, there was a woman named Lucy Virginia French who also was outraged by the fact that black soldiers had been used in the, uh, the fighting against local white men who were guerrillas. So uh, obviously that's not the sort of thing that either side would have kept alive in memory because of the circumstances. All this just demonstrates how much history still lies hidden under the surface. In many cases, yet to be discovered. Uh, this really is a, a fascinating area. Uh, and it is full of so many good stories, which I look forward to having the opportunity to share more with you. I'll see you next time. You've been listening to mountain true, download your favorites and keep up with new episodes in the Hinson Oakley podcast center.